Well, good morning, church. How are you? Good. good to see you. 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning. It's beautiful to be together. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the teaching pastors. Andrew Arndt is my last name. I'm one of the teaching pastors on staff at New Life Church, a little church just up the road. And uh, well, your pastor, Pastor Charlie, is away on a little preaching sabbatical. Uh, we're just kind of helping to fill the pulpit here. And uh, isn't it wonderful just to be together for worship? And I love spaces like this. Pastor Trey and team, thank you for how you led us so well this morning. I was thinking while we were worshiping, you know, the great, um, the great dream of the prophets in the Old Testament was that one day all of the nations, there's, it comes out in all kinds of the different prophetic books, but that one day all of the nations would come streaming into Mount Zion and they would gather and worship at the feet of God. And uh, what we believe, what Christians believe, is that somehow in Jesus, that great prophetic dream is being realized week after week when we gather for worship. And so we're coming from our neighborhoods and our homes and our little lives, and somehow the Spirit of God is turning us into a people that are a sort of window into that great prophetic dream. And I was thinking while I was back in the green room earlier today, there's this uh, verse from the book of Hebrews up on the wall where Jesus says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters, and in the great congregation I will sing your praises. Jesus in the scriptures is presented as the great worship leader, and he said that wherever two or three are gathered in his name, that he'd be there in the midst of them. So when we gather here, this is not like, this is not the Jesus Club. Some giggles. It was intended to be funny. Worship is not the Jesus Club. Worship is what happens when the resurrected Christ is really present among us. And he's declaring the name of the Father to us, and then he's gathering our praise up, and he's presenting it to his God. And we find our lives transformed in that. Don't you just love that? I've been a churchgoer, follower of Jesus for my entire life. For 37 years, week in and week out, I've been doing this, and it just never gets old to me. So with that, we're continuing our worship this morning by preaching in the book of Colossians. I'll invite you to stand on your feet for a reading of God's Word, the book of Colossians chapter 3. And just like last week, I'm going to read these verses. So I'm in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And when I finish reading the text, I'm going to say, this is the Word of the Lord as a way of acknowledging not just that God has spoken at one time in this text, but that he is speaking to us right now in it. So I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to acknowledge by saying, see, you got it. Good. Thanks be to God. Here we go. Since then, the Apostle Paul writes, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Well, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you, what's the word? There it is. You died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Lord, we do thank you for that. We thank you that we are not alone. By your spirit, you've called us together with brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. The psalmist said, Psalm 68, that you set the lonely in families. We were all lonely at one time, and you put us in your family. And then you have given us your spirit, and by your spirit, you're present, and you're speaking to us, provoking us into kingdom life. So we pray, Lord, wherever we're at on the journey, some of us in this room have been following you for 60 years. And some of us have been following you for six days. And help us remember that we're all beginners on the journey. 
There's no hierarchy in the kingdom. We're all novices. We're all amateurs. We're all failing, but following, trying. So would you wake us up to all that you are and all that you have for us and surprise us again with the wonder of being called your sons and daughters. Do that, Lord, we're asking. We're praying this morning that the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, you may be seated. Since then, the Apostle Paul writes, you have been raised with who? With who? Need you to be talkative? Good. Since then, you have been raised with Christ, Paul says. So Paul assumes that whatever it is has happened with Jesus is not just a thing that's happened with Jesus, but it's a thing that's happened with Jesus' people. That somehow, as I said last week and we'll continue to talk about today, uh, the people of God are tangled up in the Jesus story. So when he thinks about Christ being raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God, he doesn't just see that as a thing that happened to Jesus but he sees that as a thing that has spilled over onto God's people. So he says, since then, that's true. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. He says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, what Paul is not saying here is that we need to think about Jesus sitting up on the clouds somehow, and that's supposed to be somehow inspirational for us. The right hand of God in Scripture, the Old Testament especially, always had to do with God's power, and his might, and his victory. Just like the song that we sang earlier, that every battle is his, right? The right hand of God was always a symbol of his victory, uh, particularly the victories that he won for Israel, Israel's battles, right? And so Paul looks at the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, and he says, oh, what's happened is in the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, this is the fullness of God's victory. So what he wants the Colossian believers to do is to set their minds and their hearts on the things that pertain to the victory of God over sin and death and the devil. The world that we live in can be pretty discouraging, can it? And if you're not careful, what you'll find is that your heart gets weighed down with all of that discouragement and you forget what you're part of. So he says, hey, 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 remember. Remember that Jesus rose from the dead. Remember that he's triumphant over sin and death and the devil. Remember that he's lifting up the poor and he's setting the alien and the orphan and the widow and families. Remember how the sin and the brokenness and the disease and the chaos of this world will not last because Christ will return again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Just remember that, that you are a part of that. He says, I want you to keep your mind there because what happens is that our actions and our way of life usually follows what we're meditating on, right? So we meditate on money, we become money people. We meditate on power, we become power people. We meditate on sex, we become people whose lives are broken by that. But when we meditate on the victory of God, somehow our lives take on a greater quality of heaven. Amen? So he says, I want you to set your minds on things above and not on earthly things, okay? Stay fixed there. For you, what's the word? You died. And your life is now what? Hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him how? In glory. So we believe that there are two comings of Jesus, right? His first coming in the first century, the incarnation, when the second person of the Trinity took on a body and lived our life and died our death. But we believe also that one day he will return again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And Paul says, because your life is tangled up with the Christ life, 
It's a mystery that's hidden with Christ and God. When that moment comes at the end of history where Jesus returns again in glory, what will happen is that your identity will be fully and finally unveiled to the world. Sons and daughters of the living God. John said it this way in the book of 1 John chapter 3. He says, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. He says, and that is what we are. That is what we are. But the world doesn't know us, he says. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everybody who has this hope in him, John says, purifies himself just as that one is pure. Set your minds. Set your hearts. Your life is tangled up with Christ in God. And you have a glorious destiny with him in God's good world. Your identity belongs to Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. I grew up uh, in this non-denominational charismatic Pentecostal church that was born out of the camp meeting uh, movement uh, of the 60s and the 70s, and there were so many wonderful things about that church and about the camp meetings that gave rise to my church. Uh, One of those wonderful things uh, was the very hokey camp meeting songs that we did sing as part of our corporate worship when we gathered. And uh, uh, what I loved about those songs, and they were uniformly, categorically hokey, very hokey tunes. But what I loved about them, and what I think that sometimes we lose in our modern worship, is that those songs, for the most part, were really just scripture. They were Bible. And so they were a way of getting you to sing the Bible so that the Bible would dance its way into your heart. And one of them, I couldn't help but think about this as I was preparing this message, one of them came right out of this, Colossians chapter 3. And when if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Can you just feel the hokiness dripping off of these words? I know you can. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. Ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. It was good, right? Thank you for allowing me to revisit a piece of my childhood. The song has a chorus. Do you want to hear it? (laughs) Ye are dead. Ye are dead. Ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. He that's dead has been freed from sin, made alive to God in him. Now to go forth in newness of life. Now, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks be to God. Keep your day job, Andrew. You know what's funny about that tune? I think about uh, the odd juxtaposition (laughs) of that chorus. Ye are dead. Ye are dead. Right? And I thought, as I was thinking about this message and thinking about that song, I kept thinking, you know, like if you were a visitor and you didn't know anything about Christianity or the church or anything, and you just wandered into one of those meetings and you got several hundred people, you know, jumping around singing, ye are dead, ye are dead. You'd really, like, that would strike you as really bizarre, wouldn't it? Your friends ask you, how was the meeting? You went to church the other night, I heard. Yeah, yeah, it was good, it was good. People were nice, people were nice. Well, tell what do they sing about and talk about? Well, they've got this, like, morbid obsession with death. (laughs) They were very nice people, but morbid obsession with death. Oh, you mean that, like, the service was really kind of depressing and sad and morose? funeral-esque. No, 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 no. Nothing like that. It was quite joyous, the way that they sang about death. That's the paradox at the heart of Christianity, isn't it? That something in the Christian imagination, something has happened 
in the world that's actually flipped the idea of death on its head. And I think that when you survey the New Testament, I think that the thing that you have to say is that for those early believers, those first followers of Christ, uh, something had happened to them in their encounter with the risen Jesus that was so profound that they had to, they had to look back on their whole old way of life and say, well, that wasn't living at all. That whole old way of life that we were in, that was actually death. And what's happened to us in Jesus is that, in a sense, we have died out of death and we've been born again into this whole new way of living, this whole new plane of existence. Like we've gotten, we've been lifted up into the kingdom of God. We've been brought into the new creation. We've tasted something beyond what people taste when they're just born of a man and a woman. We have been born again, born from above. I want to show you something the way that Jesus put it. This is John chapter 14. If you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there. John 14 and verse 15, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. So this is a mere hours before his climactic hour, the crucifixion. And they've just completed the Last Supper. And now he's saying some things to them about what is to come to kind of preview, set their expectations a little bit. And he says in verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. How many of you are glad that the Lord has not left us alone? Spirit of truth, the helper. The Greek is the paraclete. He's the one that's called alongside to help us. So he says, I'm going to ask the Father, and he'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And the world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you now, and in you he will be. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the way that you'll be able to identify the Holy Spirit is that it's my spirit. Just like I have been with you for these three years, teaching you and helping you and showing the kingdom. So when I ascend to the right hand of the Father, I'm going to send you my very spirit who will remain with you. He will be just like I was with you. Your rabbi, your helper, your teacher, your friend. That's how you'll know the Holy Spirit because it's my spirit with you, he says. But then he goes on. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. What's he talking about? He's saying, I'm getting ready to go to the cross. And when I go to the cross and when I'm buried in that tomb, I will be hidden from the world's eyes. But that is not, he is saying, the end of the story. For I am coming back from the dead and you will see me. And then he says this. This is the critical line. Do not miss this. He says, because I live, what? You also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father. Come on now. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I what? Now, do you understand what he's saying here? Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be buried, and I'm coming back from the dead. And if that were not enough, you're going to realize in that moment that the power of my resurrection is not just limited to me. The power of this kingdom, the power of the new age that's dawning in me is not just limited to me. But when you see me alive in that moment, you're going to live. You'll be called into a whole new frame of existence because I live, he says, you also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I live in the power of my Father and you live in me and I live in you. For Jesus, the resurrection was like a hurricane. 
like a typhoon, a vortex of life that swept all that it encountered up into it. So that when you saw the risen Christ, when you felt his spirit fall on you, somehow you were pulled up into the life that he shared with his father. Are we on the same page this morning, Fellowship of the Rockies? This is what we're given in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But, but there's a catch. There's a catch. If you have Bibles, flip over one page just to your left. John chapter 12. Jesus writes this. He says this. John writes, Jesus says. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. He's talking about himself here. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And then he says this, anyone who what? If you love your life, what's going to happen? This is, if you don't know anything about the gospel of Jesus, you've got to know this because it comes up over and over and over again. That every attempt that we make to try to hang on to life as we know it, it is destined to slip through our fingers. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who what? Hates their life. In this world will what? Keep it for eternal life. And whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. So here's what Jesus is saying. My resurrection from the dead is something that doesn't just happen in this sort of, it's not just this historical moment that then passes into history, but it's part of this new moment that is dawning, and you can have it. But here's the deal. If you want to step into the resurrection of the dead with me, if you want that new and everlasting life with me, you have to be willing to walk where I walked. You have to face your own crucifixion. You have to face your own demise. You have to be willing to let go of life as you know it. Your whole identity, your whole way of being, everything that you have known yourself to be up to this point, unless you are willing to cast it aside utterly, you cannot jump into this typhoon of resurrection life that is coming because you'll be holding on to the ground. Let it sweep you up into the heavens. And if you want it to sweep you up into the heavens, then you have to let go. And it'll take you straight up into the life of God. But you have to die first. Positive and encouraging, 11 a.m. Here we are. I think the thing that you have to say about the New Testament and about the way that the early church talked about Jesus and the way that they experienced Jesus was that for the early church, the risen Christ, and I want you to get this, did not complement or complete their identities. The risen Christ became their identity. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2, he said, I have been crucified with, you know it, with Christ. And I, say it loud if you know it, I... I no longer live, he says. I mean, just think about this. This is the Apostle Paul. Hebrew of Hebrew, Pharisee of Pharisees. Good guy for the most part, except for the murdering Christians thing. But other than that, he did pretty good. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. And I, the Apostle Paul, the guy that you all used to know, I don't live anymore, he says. But Christ lives in me. When you look at me, you're not seeing Paul anymore. Just like Jesus says, whoever looks at me doesn't see me, but they see the Father shining through me. So Paul says, whoever looks at me doesn't see Paul, but he sees Jesus shining through me. Because I've been crucified with Christ, and I don't longer live anymore. But Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. For believers, genuine followers of Jesus, Christ is not a piece of our identity. He's the whole kit and caboodle. 
the, the whole thing. And we get this exactly backwards in American Christianity, exactly backwards in, in American Christianity. We have an American dreamized version of the Christian story that most of us believe, that Jesus is kind of around to give us everything that we want and spiritual fulfillment too. And so I get my house and my car and my perfect husband or my perfect wife and my perfect kids and my perfect friends and my perfect everything. And then I experience Jesus and Jesus is like the, he's like the cherry on top of the Sunday of a life that was pretty good anyway, right? That's how most people think about Jesus, that Jesus is a piece of the puzzle that completes the puzzle. Jesus is not a piece of the puzzle. He's the whole landscape. Christ is all, Paul says, and is in all. He's the whole thing. And so when we come into an experience of Jesus, we're coming into an experience of letting go of our lives so that he can become our life. And I think about the great rite of passage into the church that is baptism. How many in this room have been baptized? Signed up to follow Jesus, plunged into the waters of baptism. Baptism is such a joyous occasion, isn't it? You get the family of God together and we gather by a river or at a lake or in a church somewhere that's got a baptismal, or in our case, at our church, we bring horse troughs in and we fill up the horse troughs and we dunk you in. And everybody celebrates, and it's a lot of music and dancing and celebration, and it's just so wonderful. My oldest kids here in the last year, I had the chance to baptize them, Ethan, Gabe, and Bella, and it was so joyous and so wonderful and so fun. And as their father, and I've been a follower of Jesus all my life, so as their father being able to plunge them under the waters, my wife Mandy helped me to be able to plunge them under and lift them up was so great. But I did think... While I was doing it, I thought, they have no idea what they're getting involved with here, do they? <laughs> Discipleship, man. It's Jesus, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian who resisted the rise of Nazism in Germany in the middle part of the 20th century. You know what he said? He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That element, guys, of letting go of your life has given rise to the gutsiest acts of faithfulness that the world has ever seen. The gutsiest acts of faithfulness that the world ever seen. And Paul, when he knew he was coming to the end of his life, he was getting ready to face something that would take his life, he said this, he said, I know that it's gonna demand my life, but I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel, of his grace, unless you're willing to lose your life, you can't follow after Jesus. You can't taste the life that he gives you. And the life that he wants to give to the world gets blockaded. It only really comes when we lay our lives down. And I thought about it when I was baptizing those kids. I thought about how in the midst of all the joy and the celebration, the odd paradox is that that's a baptism, guys, is a funeral service. Again, positive and encouraging. Here we are this morning. <laughs> but you realize that, right? Baptism, we are buried with him in baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, Paul says in Romans, we too may live a new life. So it happens when I take my kids and I put them under the waters as I go, Ethan, your life as you know it, boosh, is now over. Come in, newness of life. Gabe, as you go down into the waters in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I baptize you and your life as you now over it, it now know it is over. Boosh. Rise again to new and unending life. Bella, boosh, right? You're a follower of Jesus now. And that means that your name and your identity, all that you are and all that you have belongs to Jesus. It's caught up with him. When Christ calls a man, when he calls a woman, when he calls a child, he bids them come and die. 
and he offers you something so much better in its place. And this is what I know, having followed Jesus all of my life and having been a pastor now for the last 12 or 13 years, this is what I know the temptation is. The temptation is to find your identity in things that are outside of Jesus. So I want to ask you this morning, where do you find your identity? Where's the big temptation for you to find your identity outside of Jesus? And I know how it is. The waters of baptism, you have just dried them off of your body and you've thrown your dry clothes on and you're walking out to the car. And you know what you start doing? You start strategizing ways to find your life outside of Jesus or to reattain a life that you gave up. You start looking back at it. You go, oh, but it was so wonderful. If I could just keep a little bit of that. And you can't. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. The camel has got to pass through the eye of the needle, as Jesus says, right? Well, you can't do that. You have to leave everything behind in order to follow him. So here are three main ways. I want to give you three main ways that we try to establish our identity or reattain our identity outside of Jesus. You ready for them? Here's the first way. We try to establish our identity outside of Jesus by establishing it in our past, our history, who we have known ourselves to be up to this point in time in our lives. And there are, let's just be honest, right? There are good things that come to us by way of our past, and there are also awkward and painful things that come, way, come to us by way of our past. I am not, and all of us inevitably are determined in some way by the past that we have had. So I am not just Andrew floating around in Colorado preaching at churches, but I'm Andrew Arndt. I come from somewhere. I come from the Arndt family. On my mom's side of the family, the Burdan family. It's several generations of people that are hardworking, blue-collar folks in central Wisconsin. Most of them in Auburndale, Wisconsin, a little town that I grew up in, Marshfield, Wisconsin. And I, quite honestly, I had a wonderful childhood, surrounded by family and friends and people that cared about me. I, as I told you, I uh, was in a wonderful church that, for all of its hokiness, was still, like, really healthy, and it was really good. And my parents were elders at that church, so I was surrounded by people that affirmed me and blessed me and gave me so much of my identity and who I was. And I just remember leaving that. I, you know, we had the good privilege of we didn't ever leave our church and we didn't ever leave our city. It was like one solid community, right? Gave me identity. And I left that city when I was 18 years old to go off to college. I come back for fall break and Christmas break and spring break. My wife and I got married after my freshman year of college. So we started coming back a little less frequently, maybe a couple times a year. And every time we would come back, it would always be so wonderful to see all these people that know me and love me and affirm me and are interested in me. Andrew, how's college going? How's graduate school going? Oh, look at your new baby. Oh, I heard you got a first job. How's that going? Right? Ah, it's all of the wonderful stuff from my past. And you know, what we have learned over the years, we've been gone now for almost 20 years. We keep going back, but every time we go back, there are fewer and fewer people there. The community, that group, it just has a way of kind of fading away. Now when we go, we don't see our old friends anymore because all of our old friends have left. And a lot of our family has kind of spread out. And some family members have passed into the next life. And if we tried to establish our identity in our past, we would experience it like water through the fingers, wouldn't we? And some of you in this room, that's your great temptation. You just, you're like something, like you're so fixated on the past. And sometimes we get fixated on the past, not just on the good things of the past, but the bad things of the past. Somebody hurt us. And somehow, in some bizarre way, that hurt gives our lives a sense of meaning. And so we continue to revisit the hurt of the past and find our identity there. And I'm telling you, you cannot fix your identity in the past. It's going away. Number one, the past. Number two, some of us try to fix our identity in our accomplishments, our accomplishments, our achievements, or more generally, more broadly, just our stuff. 
And so what we do is we pile things around us that make us feel like a more substantial, more concrete, more legitimate person that we would have been without that. And so we pile degrees on, or we climb the ladder of success, or we get more money in our bank account. And you know what we realize in the midst of doing that? We realize that the moment you achieve that next threshold of accomplishment that you think is going to be really satisfying, you know what happens? It turns out to be not as satisfying as you thought it was going to be. And so you go, okay, the next one. Oh, the next one. The next thing. And every time we try to quench our thirst with the water of accomplishment or the water of material possessions or the water of stuff, every time we try to find our identity in those things, you know what we find? That we're thirstier than we were before. It's like drinking salt water. You can't do it. Some of us, it's the past. Some of us, it's our accomplishments. And some of us, you know what we do? We go, oh, I'm not going to let my community, my past, determine who I am. And I'm not going to let my accomplishments, I'm not playing the game that the man set up for me, so I'm not doing that. What we do is we go, I'm going to try to fix my identity in my inner self, who I know to myself to be deep down, my true me. I'm going to try to find the true me. And so we go on the existential quest to try to find the true me. And we see therapists and counselors, and we go to you know, rallies and workshops and all of that to try to identify the deep existential self somewhere down there. And our hope is that when we find that place of true identity, that'll be bedrock for us. And then the world will see who we really are. And you know, I can talk about this with great conviction because I have done this. You have that great moment when you're sitting on your porch with the journal, journaling about who you really are, right? And then you feel like, oh, you hit it. I've discovered who I am. And you go out and you try to live that. And then you realize that there are still profound flaws and inconsistencies with who you are. Or you surprise yourself with how much of a moron you are. <laughs> and you go, that whole quest was busted from the, from the first. Our past, our accomplishments, the inner self. And you know what the problem with all of those things is? The problem with them is that they're humanly derived identities. And because they're humanly derived identities, brothers and sisters, I'm saying to you this morning that they are destined for the grave. They're fading away. They're vaporous. You cannot fix your identity in them. The judgment of oblivion hangs over them. The only place that we can get a secure identity is in the risen one, who lives, as the writer of Hebrews says, he lives in the power of an indestructible life. His life will never fade away. His glory will never fade away. His kingdom will never fade away. The new creation cannot be broken against the old creation. And so what the Apostle Paul calls us to do is he says, throw yourself into the new creation. Throw yourself into the kingdom. Throw yourself into Christ. And what you'll discover is an identity that is more firm and more lasting and more solid than any you would have created for yourself. All you have to be willing to do is let go of life as you know it. I sat with a good friend. I'm going to tell you a quick story and then leave you with a question. I sat with a good friend recently who's been diagnosed with a terminal illness, doesn't know how long he's going to live. He's a follower of Jesus. He's about 25 years older than me. And uh, doesn't know if it's going to be four weeks, four months, four years. They're trying different treatments. They're praying a lot, hoping that his life will be prolonged. But he's having to face his mortality. And we sat and did coffee, and I asked him, I said, listen, man, I'm just, I'm so curious to know what has having to face your mortality, like what has that done to your spirit? And he said three things to me that I will never forget. He said, number one, Andrew, and he was very quick with it, so he's feeling it. He said, number one, I care less about what other people think than I've ever cared before. <laughs> Isn't that great? People 
who know that they don't have a long time to live are not that concerned what their barista thinks about them. And that's liberating. And then he said this, he goes, so I don't care what people think about me, but I care more for people than I've ever cared about them before. And that hit me in such a profound way, because of course that would be the c case. When we've died to the opinions of other people, then we can really love them. The glory of God can shine through us and we can be kind to them. The virtues of the kingdom, the fruit of the spirit can come through us. So I don't care what they think, I do care for them. And then thirdly, he said this, and God is more present to me now than he's ever been. Isn't that profound? And I thought to myself, do you know why what he's living into is what we're all called to live into as followers of Jesus? We've given up our lives. So what we're called to do on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, as though the sentence of death were hanging over us, as though we weren't sure if we were going to take another breath in the new day, what we do is we say, Lord Jesus, here it is. My life is yours. I surrender my spirit into your hands. And when we do that, when we surrender our life, when we surrender our spirit into the hands of God, what happens is we're free. We're free. And we rise into the kingdom. The resurrection life of God starts flowing through us. There's the paradox, brothers and sisters. If you want to save your life, what happens? But if you lose it, you... So Lord Jesus, help us. Help us. Wherever we're holding on to things that we shouldn't be holding on to, wherever we're white-knuckling it around our identity, around life as we know it, we're asking that you would give us the grace to lay it down, to let it go, and to receive from you new and unending life in the kingdom of God. Grant it, we ask in Jesus' name.